Welcome to The Sit Down, a crime history podcast presented by Barstool Sports. Here's your host, Jeff Nadu. What's up, everybody? Welcome in to another edition of The Sit Down, a crime history podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Nadu, and as always, we are presented by Barstool Sports. If you're checking us out on iTunes, Spotify, Google Pods, wherever you get your podcasts, what's up? Hope you enjoy the show. Make sure you hit that subscribe button. Leave us a detailed review if you enjoy the show. If you're watching us on YouTube, as always, make sure you hit that like button. And if you're new around here, you just haven't done it yet, make sure you hit the subscribe button so you never miss another sit-down video. Today, ladies and gentlemen, we're, as always, going to get into another very interesting crime topic, and it's back to the world of Mexican drug cartels. We've had some great interviews over the last couple of months, DA agents, ICE agents. Today, we're going to talk to, in my estimation, one of the best journalists in the game today. He is a man who, to be fair, uh, started into this game about 20 years ago. He's one of the foremost authorities on narco journalism. He's uh, based in Mexico. He's a man who uh, really, whenever someone wants to discuss Mexican drug cartels, they go to Yoan Grillo. He's a guy who just, to be fair, is at the top of his game. And I got to be honest, I've been wanting to have him on for a while. We've seen him on Joe Rogan. We've seen him on every a really high-level show out there. Um, he's written some great books. I'm going to get into them. And I also want to talk to him about his Substack right off the top. Substack is a great way for people to, you know, essentially blog about what they want. And I want to get into the Substack because you, I thought, wrote a very eloquent piece about really, I think, the concern that I've had and I've tried to talk about on my shows and I've been brought back with a lot of bluster as far as could we ever see the things that go on in Mexico in America? I think it's a real question uh, with the state of the border. We're going to talk about all that and more. Uh, Mr. Grillo, it is good to speak to you. It's good to see you. Uh, welcome to the show. Hey there, Jeff. Good, good to be here, Jeff. Uh, I board as well up there. Everything's great. And you, you mentioned to me you're just in New York. We're going to talk a little bit about the Garcia Luna trial. You know, I actually wrote, <laughs> funny enough, you know, it's funny that I noticed about narco stuff it, it, it doesn't get picked up much here in america no one really wants to talk about it and i remember when la barbie miraculously disappeared from the bop website i had written about it at barstool and i i i had looked around in, in american journalism and, it, and no one was really bringing it up and i was surprised by that i mean as you know you don't just disappear right i mean that's yeah, not yeah. a norm yeah. um he kind of relates to that and i want to get into that but i want to ask you really straight off the top Tell me about Substack um, and tell me kind of about what, what you're doing on there. Yeah, sure. So like you said, I've been I've been a journalist covering this stuff for more than 20 years. I arrived in Mexico in uh, uh, the year 2000. You know, it's going to be coming up to 20, more than 22 years ago. I'm covering this and, and I've written for Time Magazine, New York Times, you know, Nat Geo, CNN, a lot of big media outlets. But what I like about Substack is I get freedom to write whatever I like. And to do it fast. And these days, a lot of filters of editors. Uh, like you say, a lot of American editors are like, oh, why do we care? Why do our readers care about this drug trafficker? They've never heard of this guy. You know, why do they care about this guy, Labarbi? And to be honest, a lot of editors these days uh, that you might meet, find in newspapers, they could be like 25 years old. Um, they could not, you know, not really have a lot of experience about these different issues. Um, and the good thing, you know, with Substack, you can, you can go right in there. Um, you know, right. Sometimes there's a certain audience. So, so you know, like you mentioned, though, I was had a, had a Substack piece which I reacted to this mass shooting that happened in California, cartel-style shooting. Uh, 
of a family in the town of Goshen in, in Central California. Um, the issue of the, the Mexican mafia, the Nuestra Familia, the US-based gangs of Latino gang members and with Latino prisoners, their relationship with cartels. They sometimes feel like a regular newspaper that might say, well, it's kind of complicated gang politics. Um, but it's like, well, no, you know, I want to write about this stuff. I've got 20 years writing about this. I want to get deep into this. And I think for a lot of people, it is important. You know, it's, it's, and sometimes it's only like a niche audience there of people who are very keyed up about gangs and crime. But there are a lot of people out there who are very concerned. Um, and, you know, you haven't got, you know, the, the, you can be brave, I think, about, you know, you can, I, I'm not like, on one side or another, there's a lot of polit politics around this stuff in the United States or in Mexico or whatever. And I want to write this as I see it, um, as analysis, you know, where it takes me. Um, not really worrying about a certain political side or not or who I offend or don't offend in, in these stories. And I'm glad you do it because I think it's it's something that we just don't have much of anymore. And, and I think, you know, people like yourself are, are keeping journalism alive and you're reporting on stuff that I think as we'll get into, it's probably going to come to the doorstep of a lot of people and it's going to hit them pretty quick. I want to start from the beginning with you because this is the first time speaking to you. Uh, you're from Brighton, uh, which is a picturesque place in England, isn't yeah. it? Uh, it's yeah. kind of interesting because you, you go from essentially uh, one of the more beautiful places uh, in England to, you know, an, a, a place that is quite, uh, quite different, isn't it? Um, yeah. I guess my, my thought with you is, you know, because you're, again, kind of one of the originators of all this. What made you go to Mexico of all places? Because I think cartels are interesting, you know. I report mostly on the mafia in America and, you know, the mafia has been around, you know, in America for, you know, a hundred or so years, right? Um, drug cartels are, are fairly new, aren't they? I mean, it only really got started in the 60s, 70s. You had people like, you know, Pedro Alvarez and, and that would spawn into the Guadalajara cartel. What made you interested in, in going to that area of the world? Yeah. So um, after kind of messing around a bit as a, as a, as a teenager and in my early twenties, I wanted to make a break in journalism, in like international journalism. Uh, and I I was attracted by the idea of Latin America, not so much with for the gangsters in those days. I was a bit attracted to the romance uh, of what I saw in like the movie Salvador by Oliver Stone, which is a movie from back in the 80s, where it shows this kind of burned out photographer uh, following the guerrilla insurgency against the dictatorship and kind of, you know, I was like, wow, this, you know, that, that, that's the kind of crazy stuff I'd like to do. So so I guess, you know, partly that's like, you know, adventure, hunger, wanting to be a journalist um, in the early days. Um, now, I've been around a, quite a fair amount of drugs as growing up in, in England back in the 1980s and 1990s. Uh, I knew four uh, teenagers or young men who died of heroin overdoses back then. Mm -hmm. So there was like uh, an opioid epidemic or an opiate epidemic uh, back then in, in, in England in, in the 80s, a bit similar to what's happening in the, in the United States now. Um, so I had to kind of knowledge of drugs, been around drugs. Um, and so when I when I arrived in Mexico and I saw these drug stories right away, I thought, that's interesting. How do drugs um, link to the, the communities with a lot of drug consumption, um, a lot of drug use compared to where there's a lot of drug trafficking and drug production. And then I realized that this is just a huge story. Now, at the beginning, it was glamorous. Okay, this is, this is, you know, the glamorous is exciting, you know, run around. And over the years, I saw some some things I just could not imagine. You know, I found myself um, in a morgue with 49 bodies that had all been decapitated, all had their hands and feet cut off. 
talking to uh, mothers who'd seen their sons be dragged away uh, by armed groups, uh, just seeing like terror and destruction. And so, it, you know, it stopped being so glamorous. Now, I still find this stuff interesting. I still find it exciting. Um, but like anybody covering this stuff for a long time, you get weary as well. Um, it's just like, oh, damn, this is, this is, this is some, some horrible stuff going on here. But it's, it's, a, it's an important story. And I realized what I covered in Mexico in terms of the violence, in terms of how this actually destabilizes the country. So, like, whereas, you know, with the mafia, um, you can still kind of enjoy that glamour of the mafia to an extent. It's like, okay, it can be a kind of fun thing still. Uh, you could say, well, we respect these kind of gangsters, but when they're, like, wiping out entire families, when they're just, you know, like, destroying communities, when they, there's mass graves with, like, 298 bodies, that becomes a very different thing. Well, yeah, and it, it's, you know, in, in connection to the mafia, for, for the most part, and there are situations where the mafia will go after citizens and, and women and things like that. But for the most part, I think there's one, if you do respect anything about the mafia, is their willingness to have a bit of ethics in the way they do things. They don't necessarily involve uh, kids or things like that. But yeah, it, it went from being, and, and I think, as you know, in, in the late 90s, it went from being kind of a, a group of, of, you know, kind of, vandals if you will to a paramilitary organization right that, that obviously changed the game but you know it's funny you mentioned um the old salvador film right because when i was a kid um my father loved john wayne we would always watch john wayne films and there was a movie i don't i don't know if people have seen it called big jake and it was uh it was based in like early 1900s texas and he had this estranged family john wayne and, and his grandson was kidnapped by mexican uh desperados kind of uh, and I remember that was kind of, I think, my first introduction to kind of Mexican culture. They had some scenes in the film and in, in, in a saloon near the border and just kind of fascinating times back then and, and, and even into the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. But I kind of want to ask you, um, and I, I'm going to put your sub stack. I want to make sure I, I make that clear. I want, to, I want everyone to read that. I'm going to put in the description. Um, I guess, what was your first, do you remember the first time when you said, or, or the first time you saw a dead body or, or what was the first real event that you saw that you just said, wow, what am I doing? Yeah, there's been, there's many. So um, I, I began at like a newspaper in Mexico city in English. It was kind of my first, first job. And it was, you know, I only sold, you know, a few thousand copies or whatever, 20,000 copies around Mexico city in English, but it was a good daily place, a newsroom to go to and, and get out there. And then I, I early on there started reporting on these kind of uh, local uh, gangs selling crack and then uh, went to the court martial of two generals who were court martialed for trafficking drugs to the United States or, or working with drug traffickers. Acosta Chaparro and Quiroz Hermosillo. And that was one of the first, oh, wow, this is just kind of crazy. This is, this is like, you know, at the movie, The Godfather's kind of crazy hearing and, and, and then talking about these meetings with drug traffickers and all this stuff. Um, the first time I started to see bodies was covering the city of Nuevo Laredo over the border from Laredo, Texas in 2004 to 2005 period. So this was, I, this time I had a job with the Houston Chronicle and, you know, writing for, for a Texas audience who were interested in what's happening on the border. And there was a turf war there between... On one side, uh, Chapo Guzman, uh, El Chapo, and his ally, Beltran Leva, Arturo Beltran Leva. On the other side, the Gulf Cartel and the Setas. 
and, and I started going, I was up to cover this for the Houston Chronicle. Back in those days, it wasn't like security protocols. It was just like, get out there and c cover this, you know, fly up to Monterrey, rent a car, drive into Nuevo Laredo, just start covering this stuff. Um, and then I, it was like going to these crime scenes. Now, over the years, I did more and more, a lot of this, the cop reporting. Um, so uh, Mexican-style cop reporting, you know, back in the days with scanners, you know, hearing the, the police signals or contacts with the police, it got more internet-based and kind of, you know, you know, more like following like, you know, uh, WhatsApp groups and, and different things. But then did a lot of that over the years. So, so you know, when I first saw their body, it was like, wow. And like, um, and then uh, particularly in Sinaloa, the state of Sinaloa, I was covering a lot in the turf war of 2008 and just arriving at these crime scenes. And then it was like, you know, five cops at a stoplight who'd been gunned down. And it was like pretty brutal stuff. You arrived there. Uh, one time we're driving down and we got went into a crime scene right, you know, uh, literally 10 minutes after this guy being shot before the police had even sealed it off. Uh, a cop who's having breakfast and somebody came in with an AK-47 and shot him while he's having breakfast. Um, and so he's arriving at these and then also arriving at some scenes with mutil you know, mutilations, decapitations, uh, fingers stuck in their mouth, kind of sticking a stitch, uh, a snitch, arriving at his stuff. And, and, and originally I was like, wow, like staring at these corpses. Um, like, how does that, you know, this is kind of uh, um, disturbing. It doesn't quite look real. You're like staring at a, a body that's been cut up and it just looks like it's like almost like a, a made of rubber or something. And then yeah. you see a, a family member who comes in and they're like a be a wife or a mother, and they come in there and they're screaming, and you hear their screams, and that, and that makes you realize this is, this is very real. It's very real what I'm looking at, and uh, so yeah, it was uh, it it was you know initially I, I remember going cut doing some of this coverage, and then you know be back home and have dreams sometimes and start kind of seeing these bodies in my dreams. Uh, and then after a while, I got colder to it, and the same as a lot of the very seasoned uh, cop reporters. You, you, you know, you get cold. It's kind of, kind of bizarre, kind of sick sometimes. You know, a bit. You know, you can be at these, You rush out, see some dead bodies, then you go and eat some steak. <laughs> you know, you go and eat some tacos. Um, you know, it's 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 kind of kind of crazy. Or or you're being around these crime scenes and these seasoned crime reporters, and they're kind of joking and laughing, and there's a bunch of these corpses there. Um, but you get you get used to it. You get very cold to it, and you, you know you see a lot of these. Uh, and I've seen you know way many more than I can count. Um, but some of these you know colleagues, these photographers covering this, they've seen literally thousands, you know, two thousand, three thousand photographs of like bodies, bodies, bodies. So I mean, you know, one thing about the Mexican drug war is just the level of killing has just been completely off the chart. And again, it's a difference to anything that's happened in the United States. I mean, even in the worst years of like mafia killings in new york or whatever I, I don't know what the what the numbers in the worst killings of like i mean what we talk about right. yeah like, high, like in, in a single year how many murders like mafia know when, um like in philadelphia in the 80s it was it was pretty bad it was like wars in the streets kind of stuff but it, it pales in comparison to probably just one or two towns in mexico i mean it, it, as you said the level of depravity is crazy i grew up in the in the age of you know, the internet where we were seeing these videos, right? And and as you said, they started in like 2004, 2005 with yeah. that very famous video, the four uh, Zetas, right? You remember? Yeah. It was sent, I believe, to Dallas Morning News or something. Yeah, correct. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And um, so I guess, I think we as a society, though, are a bit more desensitized to this kind of thing, though, right? I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, go back to the numbers. So like, I mean, like in, in the worst... The most violent front of all was Juarez, which I covered a lot in 2010. 
and there was 3,000 murders in that city in one year. That's a city of 1.3 million. So it's not that big and 3,000 murders in a year. So we were literally be covering a murder scene and there'd be another murder scene a few blocks away and we covered out and run, you know, just like, you know, just insane. I mean, just absolutely insane happening there. But yeah, I mean, the desensitization uh, or, or the internet, I mean, the, yeah, this, this, this Mexican drug conflict, which has really been a big deal since 2004 was it was it was a year of escalation and then 2008 and then you know these various times but yeah, it happened in the age of the internet so particularly in the first years there was this videos now that 2004 one you mentioned was originally on a vhs tape yep. that was was taken it was posted to a newspaper on a vhs tape it was given to someone else they released it and put it on tv and then from there they, they kind of started increasing this and you started seeing uh People, um, you know, doing decapitations, you know, live on, on, on camera, you know, like, you know, you'd see the whole thing. Uh, for a long time, the media were covering this stuff. Okay, we're covering this violence. And then the media realized, well, we're just kind of being a voice for them covering this stuff. And maybe we shouldn't. Well, that's what I wanted to, that's what I wanted to ask you. And I'm fascinated yeah. by the thought of it because I, I've, I've, I've heard a, another YouTuber. Um, I think is one of the best channels for, for just kind of, detailing some of this stuff without looking at it this guy disturbed reality and he he's talked about that you know are you is there a place for covering this or watching this stuff like what does it actually do for you right because for the most part it is very destructive to your head right um but in a way do we almost feel we should be reporting that this is going on but as you said are you also serving as kind of a promotional tool for these people as well, because that's why they do this, don't they? I mean, they essentially do it either for promotion or to scare people, or as you know, I mean, a lot of this is just for documentation purposes, right? I mean, they want to make sure that, you know, the, the, the thing is meted out the way they wanted it meted out. Do you think there's a place for covering this? And do you think it should be covered? So there's a difficult line, I think, covering extreme narco violence, uh, like in the United States, they always had a, 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 a kind of policy in newspapers of not having a lot of bloodshed on newspapers. People didn't want to see a lot of bloodshed. And that was fair. That's probably a good thing. Uh, whereas in Mexico, they don't didn't have that. They actually had certain newspapers which have a lot of blood, like, you know, um, you see bodies. And they call it in Mexico, la nota roja. You see that. And people buy these papers to look at this. So you have this kind of morbid, people, morbid curiosity. Oh, look at that. And it's kind of sick to have like you know, you know a, a, a bloody dead body, and then they'll have like a girl, um, you know, with, with big boobs, like next to next to the almost like the same front page, and there's these two things. It's like sex and violence, you know, mm -hmm. selling that. And you know, a lot of people there, you know, you're going to work, you're working the long hours, buy a paper, I want to see a bit of that. Um, so, so you have that kind of thing now. Um, the other stuff, like how much we should talk or how graphically. Now, I you know I've, I've been on some of these shows like Joe Rogan and, 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 and talk very graphically about the violence and very graphically about uh, the people I've interviewed have described doing things like decapitations to their victims while they're still alive. And it's very, very brutal stuff. And, and yeah, you can't say, you know, you know, is it good to be talking about that bloodily? And I think well, it's, it's, it's good to try and get the message home to people. This is going on. I mean, you know, you're a journalist, you're covering it. It's a big story. And we should try and get this home to people. So there's a certain sense there. Now, in terms of watching like, decapitation videos and that kind of thing. I am personally, I think, I think for like a lot of this stuff, we actually got a bit saturated by it. So like it, they stopped shocking after a while. 
and one of the things about what decapitation videos or decapitation techniques or putting human heads outside um you know on the street publicly and bodies was was it had an impact it went through the media and it had a shock and it became a big thing and it was part of the way these these cartels or factions of cartels were fighting their war to control territory to terrify enemies to try and inspire recruits to join them you know various different reasons behind this violence this public violence and after a while it kind of stopped shocking people it became just normal stuff so they kind of, they kind of changed tactic a bit now and now you've got more things like just a bunch of guys for videos posing with guns, posing with AK-47s and AR-15s and grenade launchers, and just like just teaming up and posing for this stuff. Are you um are you ever surprised uh, at the methods that they can figure out to inflict pain on someone? Are you ever surprised? I mean, it's I almost sometimes see them and I'm I think, wow, you know, how do you come up with this idea? Like, like where do you think that to get like a rotary saw and and you like where does that come from? Uh, but it, it's interesting you say at this point it's almost become watered down now. Uh, and they have like, we know that they're very violent, depraved people, but now it's just, here's what we have. And we want to put it on because I've seen people in, in America, they're, they're blown away that they, they think that what they're looking at is like military, right? They're looking at some of these cartels and it's like, well, no, that's a drug cartel. Um, and as, as I talked about earlier, I mean, back in the days of like the Guadalajara cartel and stuff like that, you didn't have that sort of weaponization, right? And, and a lot of the weapons come from where America, right? Yeah. Um, but I want to ask you about police, because one thing I've noticed, and and if you study some of these people, whether it's, you know, Almencho or, or Gallardo or uh, even someone like Latuta, uh, some of these people, um, they're either like normal people, like teachers or something. But a lot of them are police. Right. Yeah. You, know, you look at um, um, uh, some of the, the Zetas, you know, there are military people. Um, why do you think police are so willing to just leave that world? Is it just the money aspect? Why, right. why do so many of these people, why are they all policemen at one point? Sure, sure. To answer, just to go to the first question about torture, yeah. you could see a line of like torture going right from the Spanish Inquisition yeah. to this now. It's an interesting museum in uh, Juanajuato, which has, uh, of, of the Spanish Inquisition, it shows all these crazy torture items they had. Oh, you really? Those here go to like uh, torture people who are heretics and stuff. So you kind of see, well, that was around, and then he goes right through these different ages, and 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 then it ends up with these gangsters, and these gangsters then doing it, and, and then also mixing with technology. So they're watching videos of of Al Qaeda um, or, or, or ISIS, and then they're copying them, and then ISIS were in turn copying some of these cartels' yeah. techniques, and you get this kind of weird interaction on the internet. But about the cops, so if you look at Mexican drug trafficking, uh, like you said, the big gangsters only really emerged from the 1970s, the big gangsters. But drug trafficking itself has been coming from Mexico to the United States right since the United States really made it illegal. It really made things illegal, really clamped down. Um, Around 1914, it passed this Harrison's Narcotics Tax Act. Um, and that kind of out, restri- was with bigger restrictions on cocaine and, and opium and opium derivatives. And right away from back then, so the first documented case you have of drug trafficking from Mexico to the United States is 1916, an opium ring bringing opium from Mexico to California. Now, they were funnily enough 
Chinese Mexicans because there was a bunch of Chinese immigrants who'd come to Mexico to work in railroads and mines selling to Chinese Americans, growing opium in the hills of Sinaloa where they'd gone to work in the mines and then in the Sinaloa and said, oh, that's pretty good business. We'll take over that. Thank you very much. And that's how they kind of took over this business. Now, from the very early days, you saw the authorities in Mexico involved in this and wanting a piece of this. In that very first case in 1916, which there's an early American investigation into that by what's then customs agents, and they say the governor of Baja California is involved. So you already have officials there. Now you look, you get police involved in this over the years, and what the police basically do is the police act like a mafia, and they act like running a protection racket on the drug traffickers. Like, okay, you're trafficking drugs, you got to pay us, or, or we take you down. So you start creating a system. Now, the, in the early days, it's not just a big deal. The American drug consumption is fairly low. You know, 1920s, 1930s, people moving opium. It kind of seems like almost like smuggling a few bottles of cognac or whatever. But in the 60s, then you then see this huge increase in American drug consumption from the 60s onwards. So it's only, you know, uh, you know marijuana, heroin, and then all these various things. And that's when it starts to become big business. So you get other bigger police involved in this. Now, because the police are involved in trafficking, you know, right through then it becomes like a revolving door. So you get so many of these cops that they, they become, you know, get a cop, and, and I opened my first book, El Narco, with an interview with a, a guy who's done really brutal uh, crimes, decapitations, all this kind of stuff, and he'd in prison in Sierra Juarez, and he was a police officer. He said, he told me he learned the art of kidnapping, of torture, all that stuff, we talk about torture, in the police, and then applied it. So all these techniques they have, another technique is having water filled with chili so it's spiced up and putting a head in it so it's like boom like you know suddenly they suddenly you know go blazing there so you have this revolving door and now <laughs> more recently you know I, I, i've met police officers who began as sicarios they began as cartel sicarios and then they joined the police it began you know becomes early teenagers you know done it just it just goes up and up and up to yeah, yeah. Yeah, up and up to where you were. So right now, you know, I was just in New York. I was covering this case of a, of the public security secretary, one of the, the top cop in the country, effectively, in Mexico from 2006 to 2012, who's now in New York on trial for drug trafficking. Yeah, it's really an, an unbelievable. Uh, I guess, you know, what, what I found interesting about what you said there is, you know, I think of the word prohibition, right? I mean... Oh. I think you ask about if, if there are ways that this could ever be solved. Right. And I've, I've said before, I mean, this is um, these are generational um, hemisphere changes where like multiple countries need to align on everything. And, and it'll never happen because I think, as you know, there's really no political capital in anyone in, in America to do anything about it, because in the end, I mean, America's all profiting off this. I mean, the, the drug war that we face is really the, you know, it comes from where, where you are. And ultimately, in the end, it's in the hands of, of users, right? And, and and the people selling this stuff. And when they get arrested, it benefits the police. And, and that's how they keep the, the wheels of things turning. And then you have shootings, all sorts of stuff. But do you think prohibition, we saw it with the mafia. It was created by the, the prohibition of alcohol. And then when you remove the, the prohibition of alcohol, that goes away and uh, they get into other things. But 
do you think if America legal, let's say they just legalized all drugs, like you could do heroin, whatever. What do you think the influence would be on Mexico? Do you think it would completely shut off the, the black market? It would, wouldn't it? Well, you know, my, my thinking on this has, has evolved over the years. So first of all, I was uh, very in favor of legalizing marijuana. And the argument was, you know, because the cartels were moving marijuana. It's like, God, people are getting mass murders and all this drug money coming out of marijuana. So that, 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 so that, that's crazy. Um, and, you know, legalize marijuana, and that will really take all the money from the cartels and reduce their power. Now, unfortunately, that didn't happen. The cartels since then, okay, they've lost the money on marijuana, but now they've got more into um, fentanyl and synthetics and crystal meth. So now, you know, fentanyl wasn't, you know, really wasn't hardly existed uh, as a traffic drug 20 years ago. And now you've got huge amounts of fentanyl, huge amounts of money being made from fentanyl by cartels. Crystal meth, um, you know, we used to be made in the United States, kind of bikers, and then moved to Mexico. And now, huge amounts of crystal meth coming through. So you're saying uh, adapting, basically, they're just adapting. They're, 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 very, they're very flexible organizations, and, and I mean, and right now, they, I mean, they're, they're involved in a bunch of crimes. They're not only involved in drugs; these organizations are involved in stealing oil, um, human smuggling. Like people who, who cross the border to go to the United States will often pay money to human smuggling gangs who are working with the cartels. Or for the cartels, extortion, uh, extortion, um, uh, mining. I mean, they get a lot of money out of the mining sector in Mexico. Uh, product piracy. Well, I've I mean, seen um in some of the cases in Michoacan, uh, avocado orchards. Yeah, avocado. Uh, yeah, deforestation. You know, exactly shaking down avocado uh, growers or getting directly involved. So they're involved in a portfolio of crimes. Now, I still think marijuana should be legal now there's not i don't think there's any point in trying to go back now on marijuana and they should follow it through properly and actually you know because it's already there now um but what do you actually do about the harder drugs so how do you actually deal with fentanyl um crystal meth i mean could you really say that there's uh like a i know like some pharmacy where you can walk in a pharmacy and say i have a um a, you know a gram of fentanyl please I mean, could that really happen? And you go out and you, you, know, you die, but you die. And someone's going to say, well, you know, how's that? You know, the level well, I, think, of I think what I mean, just not to interrupt, but I, I think what I mean, like in a way of, is like you, you're able to go to like a, a clinic, right? right. And, and you're able to kind of do it in like a, an atmosphere where, you know, you're among other people, right? Yeah. So you go and you get, hey, I want some cocaine. Um, and yeah. I guess it would, you would hope it would lead to, you know, you going to rehab like everyone else. And it's, it's a way to kind of put it yeah. on notice. And you're not in the street dying over it. And, it. and and what do you know? What do we know as well? When you can regulate an industry, right? Yeah. I look at like gambling, for instance, when gambling was in the streets, it was, you could, there, there, it was the wild west. But once you start regulating it, you know, like yourself, like heroin is not, it's potent because of all the things they put in it on the street level. Yeah. Right. So I think regulation would help too, but. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, like, yeah, I mean, if we, you know, have to try and say, I do believe we have to try and look for ways to reduce the drug money. So we do need to try and figure out, I and mean, it's not working right now what we're doing. So we do have to kind of figure out, and then it is these cartels have these armies we were talking about, and I'm sure that, you know, many of the viewers have seen um, these, 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 you know, they can have, you know, 500 guys or, you know, more. I mean, in Kulakan, when they, when they grab, they'll be the other first time. They said it was 700, 700 armed guys for Sinaloa Cartel took to the streets. So 700 armed guys with Barrett 50s 
with you know with AK-47s, all of this stuff, grenades. You know, you can have that. How much it costs to run an army of seven hundred guys? You know, you got to feed them, give them guns, give them bullets, pay them. It's a lot of money there because they can have that because they're making huge amounts of money. I mean, this is you know profit. So it's the kind of savage part of, of of capitalism, but without the rules. So I agree. I mean, well, what we're doing now is not working, but it's just also difficult when you actually get into the the, the policy. So like I, mean, I st- we still have we still get a, a bit of a halfway house with marijuana. And we're not really, you know, hardly moving with other stuff. So how do we really do it? And and certainly we need to reduce the drug money. And, and yeah, I mean, some kind of you know, rehab, rehabilitation. It's such a vast treatment. Yeah, yeah. But, mean, it, but when you get into the real policy level of kind of drug policy reform, it's hard. But they've done, I think, a better job in Europe and some of this and some of the countries in Portugal, in Holland, they do a better job than in some of the West Coast cities. Because some of the West Coast cities are kind of disasters in terms of, you know they're, they're doing various things, but they're not doing them very well. It seems right, um, and it seems like a disaster of of, of the number of, of drug addicts and, and people dying and people living, uh, throwing money into it, but not really with good results. You mentioned, um, and we kind of talked about adapting to what what's going on. If if something's kind of zeroed in on you, go to something else, and and they've done that. And it, it's as you said, and I talked about this with um with an ICE agent I spoke to. It's not just drug trafficking. As you said it's other things, but I noticed, and I think Luis Chaparro wrote about this. There's a recent uh, thought that, like the Chapitos, right, the Chapo's sons, they're actually looking to get into the regulated marijuana markets, right? Um, you know, by involving themselves in growing operations. I, I saw they're selling merchandise. I mean, did you ever? Yeah, talk, talk about that a bit. Yeah, so I spent a lot of time in Sinaloa over the years, but particularly a lot the last uh, year and a half because I was working on a TV series out of there. So they have dispensaries, marijuana dispensaries. And I went into one of these and they look basically like LA uh, dispensaries, you know, like a bunch of, you know, you know, weed in jars with names. They had like some like spliffs called like Sicario. It's it's all all this kind of crazy stuff. And um, now I went in there. I had, you know, had a, we had a contact of of where one was. When it was like an apartment, didn't really send anything. They just walked in, but it was you inside. It looked you know, just a guy selling. It was like a speakeasy kind of. Yeah, kind of. You walk in there, and it's just all there. Um, but uh, yeah, Luis Chaparro did more investigation about yeah exactly how the Chapitos are, are, are running these. Now in Mexico, you got a, a funny situation where the Supreme Court actually declared you can't make marijuana illegal but then the senate still hasn't actually created the rules for legalizing marijuana here so they should actually be legalizing marijuana in mexico as well but they haven't been but the chapitos who are kind of ahead of the game the, the narcos who are ahead of the game like well just to start legalizing this stuff anyway so yeah it's interesting i mean these are i mean they're they're very aggressive businessmen um these people and you know they're, they're they've been adapting to this market and i mean you look at the way they smuggle drugs their creativity. Look at the way they have trap cars, um, you know, really well-made trap cars. Look at the way they they move stuff. Look at the way they move money. These are really sophisticated organizations that have been kind of growing up organically and developing generation over generation. So now um, some of these, you know, people, you know, they had grandparents who are in the same game and, and they're in it now, but these are kids now who have been to, uh, you know, whereas El Chapo grew up in the mountains, 
and I've been to his village in the mountains where he grew up and, and met his his mother and met his cousins and and seen seen this kind of the atmosphere up there. He grew up in a, in, in a, a poor, humble village, walking around when he's eleven years old with a with a with a sack selling oranges to people. But then there, you know, his kids would go were, were a private school kids. You know, it's so interesting you mentioned that because I deal. I, I may get the question five times a day: What does the mafia do today? You know, in America, right? New York, Philadelphia, and and I've constantly talked about. It. I think in 10, 20 years. I think the death of the American mafia will probably happen because when you're looking at the five families, right? 90% of the individuals in the organizational chart are 60 or older, right? There's no youth, right? There's no one. And why is that? It's because those folks that I'm talking about that are on those charts, they grew up a lot different than the sons of them, right? The sons are going to nice schools, Catholic schools, and they have nice homes and they don't have to struggle. And it's interesting, like the correlations between some of this and I think that's why you're starting to see, even in America, the death of the, the street gang. And not necessarily the death of it, but it, it's ultimately the biggest gangs now are, are cartels, really, aren't they? Um, yeah. But I, but I want to ask you quick before I get into that point. You mentioned some of the other things these groups are doing. And what I've always been – I know Vice did something on this, the, the fuel theft business, right? Uh, you mentioned like the Pemex trucks and they're yeah. essentially just going to these trucks and, 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 and siphoning off it and selling it in the black market. And there was a cartel, um, CSRL, which I know you've heard of. Um, they've kind of struggled the last year or two because their head, Almaro, went away. Do you think it's interesting that how quickly they were willing to go after someone like that when you kind of ask yourself, it seems like now that they're attacking the, the government's thing, right, which is oil – they're so quick to get them off the street. Why don't they have the same thought with the other things? Yeah, sure. So with the oil theft, like you had oil theft um, around in Mexico for a lot of, for many years, uh, and in particular in certain areas, particularly where you have these big pipelines going through. Yeah. Actually, someone's not even taking the trucks, taking it straight from the pipeline, and they'll drill two holes. And one they'll drill and they'll take out oil, and one they'll drill and they'll put in some other liquid to, to equalize the pressure. Uh, and sometimes they'll take refined gasoline and then they'll be selling it. Even sometimes on the, I've been to places where they sell uh, uh, gasoline. They, they, call, they call them huachicoleros. They call it huachicol. But I've been to places where they're selling this stuff where you go in and, you know, and it's kind of interesting. And they're only selling them like sometimes like a third lower than you buy it at a gas station. So it's not like dirt cheap. But it's still a third off, and I, you know, in the one, a bunch of nice cars. Someone, you know, in Sinaloa, I went to one, and they had a bunch of these, these, you know, these cans of, of gas, and, and they're selling these. So um, they have that, and sometimes they sell them for industrial purposes. It's, it's rougher uh, oil, and they're selling them for people who like cooking up bricks and stuff. And sometimes they actually sold it, and then like I even ended up getting in, sold it to the United States system, taken, and there was like Houston oil brokers buying uh, gas that had come from Mexico and been stolen by cartels. But it happened, and I wrote a story about the cartels getting into this back in like 2009, I was writing about this. And it, you know, and, it, and it, there was the, uh, some of these things where, where it went wrong and there's explosions and they killed a bunch of people because because they was drilling them until it you know, blows up and like, you know, dozens of people die. And it was like the government was like letting this, was just not paying attention to this. You know, became a you know big deal, and then you saw with this particular president, um, Andres Manuel López Obrador, who took power in December two thousand eighteen, he was very pro oil. He comes from an oil state, Tabasco, 
You know, he's built on oil. Um, he's very in, you know, he built a new refinery there. He's very into the idea of oil money helping build Mexico. So he was like keen and right, realized that we, we've got to try and put a stop to this, which is why he went after that figure you were talking about. He's like, let's go after the, the huachicoleros, the oil thieves. Now, the fact you say, yeah, you know, why can't they go after everybody? The problem is in Mexico, uh, in terms of the law, from a pure law enforcement point of view, you've got so many gangsters across the country. Apart from the fact you've got enormous corruption at all levels of the Mexican state apparatus, uh, and, and particularly the security apparatus, from you know from the the lowest cops, the lowest municipal cops standing there, to soldiers, to marines, to you know the federal cops, to all of this stuff, um, you've got corruption. So apart from that's really really rotten. But even then, if you are honest, it's hard to go off. There's so many fronts. So you see what's happened a lot in the, like, particularly under Felipe Calderon, the president, who launched a military offensive against drug cartels. Then he was like, went into Michoacan, first of all, and put a bunch of soldiers into Michoacan. And then suddenly it blows up in Ciudad Juarez. He sent a bunch of army to Ciudad Juarez. And then it blows up in Tamaulipas. And then it blows up in Guanajuato. So you're kind of, you're playing whack-a-mole. You know, it's not, you know, it's very hard to do like, um, you know, really, unless you do a very, you know, surgical, you know, taking these guys out really expansively, um, it's very, very hard. We obviously saw, and, and I think what was interesting about the recent uh, arrest of video Guzman Lopez, as you said earlier, it was the second time. And I, I think I myself, um, there were a lot of people saying, well, didn't this happen like two, three years ago? And it's like, well, yeah, it did. But you know, within like six hours, they let him go. And I found it interesting that that over here the, the the news agencies picked that up quick, and and we know because it was connected to Chapo, and the name Chapo just it's it's like the name John Gotti in the '90s. Everyone wanted to see it. Everyone wanted to read. I'll ask you: Do you think if that was any other trafficker, do you think we would even hear about it here? Of course not, right? Um, well, well no, no, there was particular circumstances uh, with the fact he was El Chapo's son. Yep. Uh, but also you had Biden. Well, you you had the, the the first time because you had what happened in twenty nineteen. So in twenty nineteen, then you had the military go in and grab this guy, and then you had seven hundred gunmen took to the streets, and then they blockaded the whole city, and they, and started threatening to kill. You know, going to the barracks where the the wives and the children, the soldiers lived, the officers lived, and we're going to kill them all, and, and like families were trapped in schools, and it was crazy. And the government, after four hours, said, well, let this guy go. So they let him go. So that was a precedent, and that was a big story. And then like, what happened this January, because it's been a crazy month already, <laughs> what happened this January was they went back and, and, and they got him. So you have a um, you have a, a big kind of story there right before Biden's visit. Kind of blew up. It's funny, you know, when you spend a lot of time in media, there's different circumstances that can propel a story up. Everyone, you know, depends what else happening that day sometimes, uh, you know, and then suddenly the media start covering it, it snowballs because everyone's copying everybody else. But you're right about El Chapo. The funny thing about El Chapo, and I say he, I, I say there was, there's been three most infamous gangsters of the last century. I would say it would be Al Capone, Pablo Escobar and El Chapo. Um, I mean, the name recognition of El Chapo. Now, I don't know if, if you disagree or say God, it should be in there as well or something in terms of, but like, well, name I, think, I think in terms real quick, I, I think in terms of, and this is, I think the thing that most people kind of mention, 
John Gotti was was very mythical and regal. And like, yeah. if I'm gonna say what a gangster looks like, it's it's him. And obviously, you know, grabbing the family the way he did. But yeah, I, I don't know that I would put him on that level of like rate, name recognition, surely. But as far as like actually doing stuff in that world, I, yeah, I don't think he moves the needle much to me. But I do understand like the regal level of him. But I think yeah. you're dead on the money with your three. Yeah. So so and like so, but, but again with with El Chapo, it's not like. There's been really been a bunch of gangsters um, yeah. who are very, very powerful in Mexico. You know, El Mayo, for a start, you know, he's, sure. he's well up there with that, but also Arturo Beltran Leva. Um, and then some of these other figures, I mean, uh, Amado Carrillo Fuentes, um, who have all been up there, um, Garcia Abrego, Ocial Cadras, they've all been up there as these major, major powerful traffickers. But El Chapo, the, there was just various things, the fact he escaped from prison twice. Um, the name, I think there's something, sometimes the, the name just seems to grab attention. People are like El Chapo Guzman. Do you, think his, um, do you think his media availability as well? You know, we saw it with Gotti. I think that's why he was so popular because yeah. he he was willing to speak, right? Yeah, I mean, he, he didn't, he didn't like, it wasn't like he went out on, on the media that much, but then he had this meeting with Sean Penn. Yeah. Uh, right. and, and that blew him up even further. So various things kind of came, but he became so famous that El Chapo, like the name recognition there, I mean, in Mexico, you know, see, obviously it's completely, you know, everybody knows who El Chapo is. But in the United States, I mean, El Chapo, people hear that name. San Pablo Escobar. These are the names that are beyond everybody else. So certainly they create uh, this kind of mythicism, which is in some ways, you know, I mean, Chapo is a major trafficker. But there's been a, been a bunch of others out there as well. Well, and that's what I wanted to ask you about, because I think, you know, a lot of people hear the name El Chapo and they think top level guy. There's nobody bigger, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. But in the truth, as, as you know, Sinaloa has kind of been interesting because they never really have had a, let's say, padrino, if you will, right? It's kind of a several people. Now, you mentioned Elmayo, who, you know, we can say, I mean, we look at his history. It's fairly interesting. But we, we kind of see in present day, not only are, are the Chapitos fighting the military and, and getting apprehended, but they're also dealing with kind of an inner war with the Mayo contingent, aren't they? Right. Because he looks at them and says, well, well, they look at him and say, you didn't do enough for your, for our father. I, you know, I don't think we're saying anything crazy here. I mean, some of the stuff we hear about Almayo, bit questionable as far as how he evades law enforcement, that sort of thing. So they're also dealing with that, aren't they? There's kind of an inner war, isn't there? Yeah. So like in terms of, of, of having a, a single kingpin, this is, this gets into quite mysterious, kind of nebulous territory of how they operate. But my understanding is it was really more like a federation of uh, of powerful traffickers right. out of Sinaloa. Yeah. Um, I, I used to talk about, you know, going back some, you had Arturo Beltran Leva, El Chapo, um, El Mayo, and Nacho Coronel. Um, another powerful one along there as well was El Azul. Mm-hmm. So you had the, 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 these powerful figures, and then um, Nacho Coronel was shot there by police. Um, or shot there by the military, sorry. Um, Arturo Beltran Leva went to war with El Chapo and then he was killed by the Mexican Marines. So he ended up with El Chapo and El Mayo being the two most powerful traffickers. Uh, and perhaps having a partnership or, or, or maybe even Mayo being the, the, the senior one there, but also having control, particularly in certain zones. So you see nowadays, so now then the sons of El Chapo came in the Chapitos, and they had a faction. So now you see different factions of the Sinaloa Cartel having a power based in different zones. 
and having people who are loyal to them outside other places. So it's quite a complicated system how it works, but you get like, for example, Los Chapitos are very powerful in the city of Culiacán. Up in the mountains of Padrejuato, where El Chapo was born, his brother, who's known as El Juano, is going to be a real power up there. El Mayo's rural base is to the south of Culiacán, in an area near where he was born, um, uh, a little village where he was born in that area, and you've got sons controlling that area. But at the same time, these guys up in Sonora have guys who are loyal to them. So then, you know, Los Chapitos have their people who are loyal to them, um, Los Salazares, Los Paredes in Sonora, who then have people below them. Sometimes it works more like a kind of medieval uh, kind of feudal system where you have powerful people at the top and then people who are loyal to them, and then people that are below them, people loyal to them, kind of further down, but then people could change their loyalty. Do you think that the rest of a video, because I mean, I think if you, you look into this at all or studied any of it, I mean, you know, is he the most powerful brother? Probably not, is he? I mean, he's definitely part of that grouping, but he has other brothers that are quite powerful. Do you think this is just kind of a, a peace offering to the United States to say, hey, we're doing this as you come here and, and maybe we'll extradite them to you. And, you know, here's one trophy for your case. You know, do you, do you think it was because, as you know, I mean, there are there are other more powerful people, aren't they? Yeah, sure. And and the 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 the, the belief is, and if you talk to people on the streets in the lower, um, you know, they'll they'll say that his older brothers are the yeah. more powerful um, sure. members of the Chapitos. There's four main brothers, and the two older ones are the most powerful. So Bivio was there. I mean, he's indicted in the United States on drug trafficking, uh, but he's not the most powerful brother. I think it was. A, certainly a, a bone to throw to, to Biden. And when Joe Biden comes and, and he's under pressure back in the US, he's got a, um, you know, people saying fentanyl crisis. I, I mean, I, I'm even surprised it's not even a bigger political issue. The you know, 107,000 people dying of overdoses in 2021. I mean, I'm surprised it's not even a bigger issue still. But he's got pressure here. You know, you, you go to Mexico, you've got to confront the Mexican president about fentanyl. So he can say, you know, what about this fentanyl trafficking? And you know, the president can say, well, we just got this guy. Yes, that's, yeah. I think, all it was for. Bro. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Yeah. And we took a bunch of, we took 10 soldiers, got killed there. So it throw, it gives you something there to throw back. But also, um, it was a personal thing for this president of Mexico. Because like I said, you had that, what happened in 2019, that was a stain on his presidency. Mm-hmm. He had that hangover. I heard from somebody who sat in a room with, with, with the president a couple of years ago, that he said that the biggest kind of, regret he had the biggest most painful thing he had was letting Obidio Guzman go you know he know he knew that if he left office and, and he's, very, he's very concerned with his legacy this president he's very concerned with history and he knows that's a stain on him so I think he I believe that he was like I've got to get this guy back you know let's get the army to do this take that that guy particularly and that's one of the reasons why it's a symbolic political arrest uh, in some ways more than a um you know any meaningful uh, attack but then again like you said before it's like how do you, you know, how do any of these arrests stop the drug trade? How do the arrests and actually the vote chapel stop the drug trade? I mean, you've got like, you know, the, you've got various factions in the Sinaloa cartel, and then you've got a dozen cartels at least out there moving drugs. So, yeah, we saw it in uh, Sicily last week. They arrested Matteo Messina Denaro, and, and I, th- I thought to myself, you know, let's stop pretending like this is going to for a millisecond stop the Sicilian yeah. mafia from operating. But you know, it's funny, you mentioned the the power of the brothers. I think we almost found that out in the first arrest when there's a phone call where Yvonne calls the brother 
and and he, he kind of says, "Hey, you know, yeah, stand down." And he goes, "You know, fuck that. You know, we're, yeah, we're yeah, coming yeah. to get you." That, yeah. I think that kind of shows, you know, hey, I make the decisions here, and we're not doing anything. Yeah. We're yeah. coming in, you know. But it's it's really interesting. But I, it did seem like a bit of a peace offering, if you will. But I want to ask you about. We talked about the Substack you wrote, and I. I think it's so necessary to talk about. And and I got into arguments recently about this where people, you know, that never happened. That'll never happen here. That'll. And I said, well, I don't know if you know, but it already is happening here. And so you wrote about this, this shooting. Right. And I think, you know, more info will come out and it may be a cartel shooting. We, it may not be. Who knows? But the truth is, um, I'm, I'm asked all the time about who's like the most predominant organization in America. Right. Because one time it was the mafia or, or one time it was a, a street gang or something. I'm kind of at a, a wit's end with, with answering it. Cause I don't, I don't truly know. I, I think in the end, all these people have one kind of group that they all work under in a way, don't they? I mean, they're not getting the drugs themselves. They're not making them. Are they? Of course not. Do you believe that this is already, ha- this is already happening? I mean, and it's only going to get worse, isn't it? With the border. So the, the cartels, yeah, they're, they're, they're all over, all over the United States, um, and, and they're moving drugs, and they've become, they've grown in the United States over the last couple of decades. Now, why they're all over the United States, uh, and and, and say so, you know you can see the you watch the evolution of this because you, you can watch the, how the how the Colombians back in the eighties were flying the cocaine straight into the United States, you now flying it right to Florida and like you know mm-hmm. throwing down you know cocaine which is like you know falling on top of churches and stuff um and then you know the, the united states cracked down on that and had the uh the, the south florida task force and then they cracked down and had the navy ships out there and like going after the, the cocaine coming in so the Colombians said oh, we'll go to mexico and we'll, we'll 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 hire the mexicans to to bring in the cocaine for us and give it to us and then the mexicans ended up saying well we'll cut out you know while we're just getting paid you know a few thou kilo We'll buy it off you and we'll make the big money ourselves. So then the Mexicans are becoming the wholesalers in the United States. But then gradually over the years, you've seen that the Mexican cartels get further down. And you've seen with, you know, this on the back, it's sad to say on the back of this large immigration, particularly in the last 20 years, or from Michoacan and Jalisco particularly. You look at those states, they've got people everywhere. A lot of the organizations from there, you know, like the Jalisco New Generation Cartel, they're, they're very well positioned all across the United States. They've got these connections going back to these towns, villages in Jalisco, um, where they can find people and, and start working for them and setting up shop all around these places. So then they're still not really at the street level. So they're not like, um, you know, they don't really worry about going on a street corner and selling drugs. But at a kilo level and above, that's where these, these cartels are. So they're all over the place. However, for most of the time over the last 20 years, they do not want to be killing people in the United States to bring heat on their operations because they're making huge amounts of money. They're making these billions of dollars doing this. So why kill people, especially why kill cops? They had a couple of cases where there was a string of cartel killings. I mean, it's been, it's been various, but there's a couple of cases happened in the, in, in the early 2000s. One was over in South Texas with the Setas, I'm sure you're aware of, formed by uh, defectors from the military, who were kind of upstart organization, like we break the rules, and they started killing some people in, in, in Texas, South Texas. And then they hit them pretty hard. There was some you know good work um, of law enforcement to go after their, these murders. And, and, and so these, these like this, it brings heat on us. And they had like wiretaps and somebody's setters and stuff and, and really went after these cases. And 
some of the, the local police departments uh, down there on the border. Um, and then uh, also another case was in, in South California, in San Diego. You had a breakaway from the Ariana Felix mob called Los Palillos. And they were because they were a breakaway and they started doing a bunch of, you know, this kind of crazy gangster stuff in the United States, uh, dissolving bodies in acid. In, in, in California, I went to a place, I went to a ranch recently where this happened, where they, they dissolved bodies in acid in California. Oh, these old ranches right there on the border on the, on the U.S. side. But again, the law enforcement, it took a while, but they, they kind of got onto this, went after these guys, took them down. And like, you know, you can't do that stuff in the United States. It's kind of draw a line there. Especially you can't kill law enforcement. There was one case where they killed a Border Patrol agent, Brian Terry, in Arizona. Uh, it was linked to a, a gun trafficking scandal known as Fast as Furious. You might want to Fast as Furious, you might want to heard of. But they killed him. You know, it came down very hard on this. So they tried to set that line, but however, it's hard, hard to keep that line. Now, over in California, you've also got a relationship, a strong relationship between the Latino street gangs. Uh, and the, and the, the prison-based gangs, so the Mexican mafia and the Nuestra Familia and the cartels of the cartels bringing in and selling them drugs and then selling them drugs on the street level. Now, those street gangs also enforced uh, a level of like not bringing, having too much violence since the 90s when, and this comes from, from various sources, both from police and gangsters, they banned drive-by shootings. So like, you know, you can't, you can't do drive-by shootings. You have to get out of a car. You have to walk up, see the guy, and kill him. We don't want you killing children, mm -hmm. civilians with this. So you look at the, the, the murder rates in a lot of these Latino neighborhoods in, in California and elsewhere have been kept down. A lot of this by the, the policing, by the gangs themselves, of like keeping that violence down. Now, what happened in this, this, this massacre in Goshen, uh, California, um, last Monday, uh, probably nine days before this uh, this podcast will go out. Then you had um, some, some gangsters who went in there and they killed a 16-year-old girl, a 10-month-old baby, you know, an entire family. Um, and it, it, we don't know yet exactly who it is. Um, you know, were these some breakaway cartel people again? Or was it gang members who were breaking the rules? Or somebody else, you know, or, or, you know, people strung out on drugs. We don't, we don't know exactly what happened and why they did it. But there's a real danger there of that what becomes the exception becomes the norm. Because if that exception becomes the norm, and it's like, well, you know, you kill, you kill my, you know, you kill my entire family, I'd kill your entire family. Mm -hmm. And then, okay, you do that, I'm going to do that, and, you know, and, and, and your, your cousins as well, and, 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 and I'm going to, you know, decapitate those people. And as you start seeing, and, and law enforcement in the United States, the United States has been, you know, it's a country with um, a huge amount of guns, a huge amount of drugs, a lot of organized crime. It's way different from, from Europe from that point of view. Um, even Italy, in terms of the firearms and the streets and stuff. However, the United States has had very robust, very aggressive law enforcement. Now, you know, in some ways, you know, they're, they're, they're too violent, too aggressive. There's a lot of people shot in police killings. But they've kept, you know, crime, gangs down to an extent. But now you've got a very demoralized police force. Um, so, you know, the, the things could change. And there is real concern. But not just, I mean, the cartels, I would say the cartels, probably the most 
powerful, brilliant. I mean, if you could look at them collectively, the most powerful organized crime groups in the United States, uh, and maybe individually some of them, in terms of money, they're really moving around the United States and that kind of thing, and people they have. But also, you've got, you have got the, the the gangs with connections to Central America. I interviewed a guy in Honduras from the MS-13 who was running a chapter in Baltimore, Maryland, um, of MS-13. That a lot of he had, you know, he was talking about what the kind of stuff they were doing, and they were doing shakedowns, doing shakedowns in the United States on like migrant businesses and recruiting different people. So, you know, again, um, this is stuff. That, you know, you do need to be watch out, watch out for, and be vigilant for, because you see, in Latin America, the time that I've been in Mexico, the work I've done in Central America as well, Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala, you see how societies can be so shaken by this, and how it's regular poor people are the biggest victims when this violence really gets out of control. You know, I have to wonder about, you know, you mentioned Baltimore, or Philadelphia, or, or Chicago, or any of these places. These places that have a lot of murders, like five, yeah. six hundred murders a year. You have to wonder, um, how many are connected to the to the drug trade, right? Most yeah. notably high level drug trade. You have to wonder, I mean, it'd be interesting to see how many in particular are. Uh, I spoke to an ICE agent and when I asked him this and I'll, I'll kind of ask you, do you think there's ever a day where this country, I'm not going to say invades, but does like, and he mentioned like choreographed, like operations in Mexico. Do you ever see that happening? Uh, I don't think it's impossible. I also don't think it solves the problem. So, like, if we look at how this could really play out, then there's a push from some people. It's, it's a, you know, there. But some politicians are into this as well, um, and, and uh, saying you should declare the cartels as being terrorist groups. So you declare them as being terrorist groups, uh, terrorist organizations, foreign terrorist organizations. Then you no longer has to be like, okay, we just do this indictment, and we do, you know, you could really do like, you know, hit them hard or do some kind of kind of drone strike. Now the thing is, I mean, maybe you know they, they could do that, and it would it would beef up cases about some of these guys and so forth. But still, even if you do go over the border and do like, you know, like like you see in the movie Sicario, kind of go over the border and shoot up a bunch of these guys or send some drones over and you know, you know blow up some of these guys. That doesn't solve the problem because there's so many of these organizations and, you know, you kill a hundred of them, you know, 10, 20, 30, a hundred. There's, there's thousands and thousands. I mean, I, I would say that literally in Mexico, in terms, if you look at the broader scope of organized crime in Mexico, the cartels in the broader sense, you know, you definitely got hundreds of thousands of people working for them directly and, and probably millions of people, including families connected to them. So it's really a whole big subculture of the country, um, and you know, and, and if you do go over, just gonna America goes goes over and starts shooting up a bunch of people, and you end up killing some regular civilians, and that just creates a big backlash. I mean, it's like, so it's not really, it's not even like you know, it's not like when you, when you when you go after you know, Al Qaeda or, or the, the beginning days, and they're like after quite specific cells, you can try and take out some of these who are specific cells, plotting and terrorist acts, and so you start doing kind of playing kind of cat and mouse on that. But, you know, you can't do that with the cartels. So, so it might happen, but I don't think it will solve it. I have two questions and then we'll let you go because I don't want to keep you all day. Do you ever um, – what's the end game for all this? Do you think there is one? Or do you think it just continues to get worse and it's just accepted because that's how things are? And it would – you know, like we hear the thing, we consistently hear generational change. You would have to do, like, 
things that we're not probably prepared to do. And you'd need other countries to be in on it with you. Do, do you think it'll get ever get any better? I mean, you have to think with the, the border, the way, and whether you're red or blue, it really doesn't matter. It, it is a national problem, right? Anybody could come in. We don't know who these people are. And that gives us a presented security risk. I guess what's, what do you think the end game is with all this? Do you think there is one? Yeah, yeah I think there has to be one. Um, you know, it's gone forever. If, if you look at this kind of state of, 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 of quite extreme violence in Mexico, it's really been 15 to 20 years that we've seen this. Yeah. Uh, so it, it's a certain time in history. You know, certain factors came together with all this stuff. The kind of the state government got weaker in Mexico. You had a kind of change. Um, the same time as drug money opportunities were there, is, is the, the guns could flood in. Uh, all of these kind of things lined up, the stars lined up for these guys in a way to create this real issue. And it's not only Mexico, like Mexico, it's Brazil. Um, you know, the go down to Brazil, the, the red commander, the first commander of the, cap the capital. It's Central America, the, the, the Maras, Colombia, of course. So you've seen a whole bunch of countries and, and, and you can see similar reasons, similar deep factors. It will, it will play out. I mean, one of the things that is kind of happening um, is you're seeing a move to more authoritarian, more milita militarized governments in various countries in Latin America. And El Salvador's a case where they're really hitting the gangs very hard. It's like, and it's a smaller country, and the gangs are nowhere as powerful as, as Mexican cartels, either in finances or weaponry. But in El Salvador, I was just down there in December, they locked up. Um, 1% of the country over nine months. So that'd be like in the United States locking up 3 million people over nine-month period. Wow. Massive roundup of basically anybody in any way connected or accused of being connected. And they're not just like an easy like lock up. This is locked up in really crowded prisons where the families are outside. You talk to these mothers outside and they're like, they came to the house, they took him away. We didn't know what. They said they would bring him back. He's in prison. Um, we don't even know if he's still in this prison. We don't even know if he's still alive. You know, like... It's real hard, like basically suspending civil civil liberties. Um, but most people in El Salvador support this. Most people support it, and it's had a massive impact on these gangs. Mexico's becoming militarized, but it's hard to see. So now you can get situations where it's kind of the worst of both worlds, where you end up with really militarized countries, but the gangs are still doing whatever they want, and the military is doing, you know, kind of doing its own violence and shakedowns and stuff. But the gangs are still doing stuff. So you can get that kind of worst of both worlds. But I think like one thing is you get end up getting more militarized, more authoritarian countries, you know, with this. That's one kind of end game. Other things, more you know, slightly kind of nicer ways of you know, generations change. You start seeing less children, kind of demographic change, um, more educated people. I mean, now a lot of kids in Mexico go to university and stuff. Could you end up with you know, like just just things change? You haven't got it like a you know, this big group of young people who want to be hitmen because that's the thing as well it's like it's like where you know in mexico the last um the last you know just 10 years or in a bit you've had more than three hundred thousand murders so like how many of these people mostly young men are ready to be recruited and die in this war um and uh, there was one gun uh, I saw an embroidered gun. I saw uh, in, in captured by the military, which had had the slogan saying, "Only the dead have seen the end of this war." <laughs> so it's kind of, kind of, but like you know, it kind of gets burned out. I mean, you just don't have the generations of people. 
Uh, and maybe maybe drug policy reform, like we talked about, maybe that will be a big player in the end. Maybe we'll figure out a better way of dealing with drugs and, and Americans particularly not buying a bunch of illegal drugs and having this black market of drugs fueling these these mafias. But something I think, I think probably 10 more years, 15 more years, maybe, <laughs> maybe even more, I don't know. Do you think it also has to do a lot with just the 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 fact that most of these young people don't have anything? They have no money. They have no prospects. That's just kind of where they're going to have to go. I've seen it in Italy, too, with like young gangsters. They don't have anything else. The unemployment rate is super low, that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. So so like, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's people who, who earn bad money and the car does offer more money. But also some of the stuff is like, you know, sometimes these cartel guys don't even get, you know, they're not all living the, the glamorous lifestyles. They're earning like, you know, most of them really are earning pretty bad money. They're just like hitmen and soldiers and lookouts and stash houses and smugglers and all this kind of stuff. They're doing pretty brutal work and they have pretty brutal lives and they're going to be dead or in prison. Um, so, you know, it's kind of how, how you know, you figure out a way of, of actually getting up and reaching to these people and saying, well, can we try and... There's more here for you than just this. Because yeah. you're right. They, they really, I've, I've heard, like, obviously the commanders and people like that make a ton yeah. of money, but these Halcones, they would call them, yeah. like, lookouts, if they don't make any money. Um, last question I have, and, and if you don't want to answer, it's okay. Yeah. I, I've just been curious about it. You're inarguably one of the most dangerous jobs on the planet, right? I mean, it just is. It's a, it's a dangerous job because, yeah, I remember in like the 50s and 60s, you would see crime reporters in America and they would have death threats put on them by the mafia. You know, I know there's a guy in our area, um, a, a crime boss wanted to have him killed. Do you ever worry for your life? Yeah, I think, I mean, anybody who, who covers this has to be worried and nobody can be overconfident about this. Um, now... I've I've known in you know, a personally two journalists here, Mexican journalists who, who have been murdered. Uh, I've seen various journalists who, who have fled Mexico or fled their residence in Mexico for somewhere else because of this. I've been in various sticky situations myself over the years. Um, so it, it, it's tough. Now, one thing is it, it's a lot more the journalists in the small towns or, or in the cities and towns where the cartels are strongest is happening. So Mexico is pretty varied. I've got one uh, story on my substack, which which surprised some people, said that Mexico, whereas Mexico is very violent, Mexico City's murder rate is not vi- is not that high. They've reduced it. They halved it the last three years. And it's in fact lower right now than Portland, Oregon in Mexico City. So Mexico City, where I live, now I travel around, I've been to every state in Mexico and I travel around all the time to all these places. But I can go there and come back and have a certain thing here now that the cartels are not operating as much here. Um, but it's something, you know, you've always got to be concerned about. And it's, you know, it's been a real tragedy that the, the, what's happened to so many of these, particularly journalists who, who don't have money and resources and don't work for big outlets. Uh, what's happened in the last in the last 20 years, the number of journalists being killed. But it's, it's an important story. It's an important, you know, information about this stuff. Because, you know, I think... You know, whatever happened, I mean, you know, you know, so maybe this stuff will go down in Mexico. Maybe, maybe it won't be. But like also in the United States, maybe it will go up. <laughs> and the United States has got a big history of violence going up and down. Uh, and it's on the rise right now. We'll see if that goes down again or plateaus, but you know, we'll see. But you see there's certain conditions of the 21st century that can make this criminal fighting, these kind of criminal paramilitaries, uh, organized crime be a very big important issue. It's not just 
like the side, the cop pages is a big important issue for people to, to, to be aware of. And I'm sorry I lied. I have one more question, but I think this will be something that people are interested in. You know, you're you're someone that lives in Mexico. We hear all the time about like travel warnings. You know, don't yeah. go here, don't go there. Obviously, I think most people aren't going into Michoacan or Zacatecas or whatever. But you know, like when we're talking about Quintana Roo, places like that, yeah. would you willingly travel to Mexico? Yeah, it depends. It's very rare. So so so. I'd certainly go to holiday to Cancun, um, go to Mexico City. Um, I'd certainly it's, it's okay. It's like it's not the whole thing's not like a whole all a big war zone. Now some places are like that, but it's not the whole country. Right. So do a bit of research. I mean, there's 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 places I wouldn't recommend people go to, but other places you know good and, and people got different uh, um, risk levels as well. And it depends. You know, some people you know you might be a kind of person who will go to south side of chicago um or you know it it might not be um um one might not be so like so it depends but also you know for anybody um i would say um certain places are okay um and and certain places aren't right and you know i think if you just don't act like a total ignoramus i'm sure you'll be okay you know uh just have a good time and uh everything will be good uh you and grillo i really Fascinating. I probably talked to you for hours, but I don't yeah. know, I have all that time. I'm sure we'll speak to you again. I want to recommend um, people go check out uh, all your content, but I've actually read your book, El Narco, Inside Criminal uh, Mexico's Criminal Insurgency. It's it's super well done. Um, you know, I know you're covering the trials and, and everything going on. You, you do a great job. You're one of the best at this. Um, just kind of give uh, give an idea of where we can find you and uh, some of the things you got coming up. Do you have anything big you're working on? I've uh, got a new book project. It's just in in, in the cooker right now. So so uh, just see if that if that comes through. Uh, but I'm doing a lot of prolonging into the Substack. I really want to try and get that moving and growing and get a lot of uh, discussions like this with you about people who are on organized crime. So really appreciate it. People check it out. You can subscribe for free. Uh, so check out Substack, Young Grillo, Narco Politics. But just look it up there. You can have a link to it. Um, check out my books. Really appreciate it. Read those a trilogy of books. So El Narco, Gangster Warlords, and Blood Gun Money. Uh, and uh, uh, yeah, you know, I'm in a, in a bunch of podcasts and got some other other documentary and podcast projects. A bunch of stuff I want to try and bring out and keep telling these stories. I'm going to link all that in the description below. I, we saw El Chapo made a, a whining declaration to Obrador to maybe get moved from ADX, and I wrote about it because I found it fascinating that. I guess El Chapo believes he's going to be in, you know, people think of federal prison, they think a club fed, you know, these places, but you know, the ADX is one of the most secure prisons on the planet. And you know, this is a guy who has escaped multiple times. Uh, he doesn't like the conditions inside of ADX. And I, I found that pretty funny. Um, and I, 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 I'll ask you just quickly, um, what'd you think of that? Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, yes, yeah, the super max, as it's known, is is, is hard. I mean, you're, you're under pretty severe conditions. I mean, you're under long times of isolation. So for anybody, you know, under that island, you're going to get pretty crazy. You're sat there like some, you're in a cell by yourself, you know, with the light on um, for long hours. So you're, you're desperate. You're going to throw anything out, you know, uh, appeal. Now, the fact he appeals to the Mexican president, um, Kind of doesn't make the Mexican president look good in a way. <laughs> it kind of, how come this guy chap is appealing to him to get out? Um, so he said, Oh, we'll look into that. Uh, you know, uh, 
I don't think it's going to go anywhere. I don't think the I don't think the Mexican president will try it, or the Americans will let him. Uh, but I mean, you know, he, he might gonna, he's going to try this. I mean, you're you're under, you're, in, you're in very severe conditions there. I mean, like mentally, not having that communication, you know, that's many pretty torturous. Yeah, what a fall from grace we would say. A billionaire to uh, a seven by twelve cell. Uh, Yo and Grillo, great stuff. Good to hear from you. I'm sure we'll speak to you again. Uh, we'll have you on at another point. Uh, make sure everyone goes and checks him out. Uh, great work. Thank you, my friend. Appreciate it. Great chatting, Jeff. Thank you. Uh, as always, guys, appreciate you being here. We'll see you next week here on The Sit Down.